All right, so um, I'm really having fun with the little survey you guys did. So I had everybody last week who was here fill a list of things they wanted me to talk about, which was great. Uh, and so actually, you know what, I'm gonna really quickly, I wonder if I can show you that list so you can see. So I was um, intimidated a little bit about trying to figure out how to get all these in. So we're, this is obviously over several weeks, but um, if you're curious, I thought this was fun. So we had a lot of people for science and religion. Um, the moral law wasn't super high. Miracles was a big thing. Re Resurrection of Jesus has got to get covered, right? That's huge. A lot of people interested in that, reliability of the Bible. Um, sending people to hell, et cetera, et cetera. You can kind of see um, which one's got the most hits. Uh, and then I got a few write-ins, which I'm really excited about. I love write-ins. Uh, so why is there evil? How does it evolve play into atheism? Um, why don't we see God so easily? Does God influence world events? Deconstructing faith, etc. So um, my thinking is tonight and um, the next couple of times we're together, um, we're going to go through sometimes more than one of these a night. Um, and I'm always happy to stay on a topic as long as you're interested in it. Okay. So uh, I don't have to get through more than one a night. If we get through one topic, that's fine. But I'll prepare a couple and we'll see how that goes. So tonight, I actually um, felt like I could combine a number of these topics that you guys selected. Um, so um, we're going to do, well, some of them were related. So we're going to talk about deconstruction, um, which is kind of its own thing. And then we're going to talk about science and miracles, which I think relate to each other. Um, so that's our, that's our kind of uh, short-term plan for the evening. Um, oh, my goodness. And this little bar right here is going to drive me completely nuts. Okay, good. Um, so uh, I'm not going to go over stuff we did last week a, a lot. We, we just talked a little bit about the idea of apologetics. And um, basically, we, we mentioned the idea that um, apology is from the Greek word um, apologia. It means defense. We see it in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, where he says, always be prepared to make a defense for your faith, um, but do so with gentleness. And um, that's kind of how we're trying to think this through. How do we defend our faith? Sometimes an apologetic helps us as the believers deal with difficult questions. And sometimes it's a tool to help a non-believer wrestle with a difficult question, right? We talked a little bit about um, ways we do apologetics. Um, oh, oh, this is good stuff. Okay, briefly we said um, some apologetics begin with Jesus, some end with Jesus, right? Some You just start with talking about Jesus or you lay some foundation first. Um, we talked about the, the apologetics can be proactive or reactive. Tonight we're going to do mostly reactive stuff, which means somebody else has a question, how do we respond? Last time we were together, we did proactive stuff. If you're a non-believer, here's something you should think about. Uh, and then we talked about sources, philosophy, experience, revelation. Um, and the, the big things that I think are important, the apologetics are conversational. And it's not defeating someone in an argument. That's not the idea here. And so what questions is your audience asking? What common ground can you build upon? A really good place to begin. All right. That all good. Talked about that last week. Okay, great. So um, I, I want to get into some of your topics and most of them are responsive which is great they're hey if somebody says this what do we do with it and i'm actually going to start with a write-in so somebody asked um what does it mean to deconstruct our faith anybody ever heard um anybody talk about deconstructing faith 
Joe, there's curiosity. Okay, um, I have. Uh, so th this is kind of a, a popular phrase uh, or concept that's running around in Christian circles these days. And it particularly tends to apply to people who grew up in a more traditional church, kind of like ours, um, who then are um, really kind of questioning their faith later in life, okay? Um, if you want a little bit of a definition, Marilyn Mudge says, um, for our purposes, the, the, the word uh, deconstruction or deconstructing faith um, is uh, the taking apart of an idea, practice, tradition, belief, or system into smaller components in order to examine their foundation, truthfulness, usefulness, and impact. Whereas Rachel Held Evans wrote in her book, Searching for Sunday, Loving, Leaving, and Finding the Church, it is taking a, quote, massive inventory of your faith, tearing every doctrine from the cupboard, and turning each one over in your hand. Um, so when people talk about deconstructing faith, this is kind of what they're talking about, right? I always believed this big thing, I'm going to take it into little parts and address which I still believe and which I don't and what I think about them, etc. Okay. Um, uh, oh, that was supposed to show up by bullet points. It didn't. Fine. Um, so, in general, uh, this isn't a horrible idea. Okay. The idea of saying, hey, I was taught this when I was three, and I've never questioned it since then. Well, maybe it's time to have some questions. Right. Uh, and we have a lot of scripture about the idea of faith maturity. Um, we have places in Romans and 1 Corinthians where Paul talks about strong and weak Christians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he talks about the idea of, of strong and weak Christians as it relates to meat sacrifice to idols. And he basically says, some Christians believe that you can't eat meat sacrificed to idols because they believe that the idols have some kind of power, right? That they're, they're evil and it's like worshiping a false god. And if you believe that, then you shouldn't eat the meat sacrificed to idols. Um, but he says it's kind of a weaker perspective. This is Paul's language, not mine. A stronger perspective in Paul's language would be to say, there are no other gods except for our God. All idols are nonsense. And since they're nonsense, it doesn't matter if you eat an animal sacrificed to them or not. And then he says, and this is really important, if you are a strong Christian on the topic of meat sacrificed to idols, and you're spending time with a weak Christian, you need to conform to the weak Christian, right? Don't make them stumble for the sake of your strength. Does that kind of make sense? Okay. Uh, um, I, I used an example before, but I had a youth director who was once at a bar shooting pool as an adult with her adult friends having one beer, totally um, moral and good. And her, one of her youth group families walked in and they saw her doing that. And they, the kids thought that she was doing something bad, right? So she was the strong one. They were the weak ones. Because of that moment, she decided she would never drink in public again, right? And so it wasn't that she gave up alcohol. She, she had no issues with alcohol. She didn't want to be misperceived. So she decided if she's going to drink, she's going to have a beer at home with her friends, right? And not at the bar. Make sense? Okay, so that faith maturity idea is good. And, and Paul in Ephesians says that we're supposed to grow up in maturity until we start looking more and more like Jesus, basically. Right? Um, however, 
I have a little bit some concerns about the, the, the way deconstruction gets talked about in our world today. And um, the, the main concern I have is that um, if, if you are coming at your faith and you've been, you know, you've always believed X, Y, or Z because you heard them when you were three or five or 10, you never thought about it. Um, it really is healthy for you to start thinking critically about some of those things you were taught as a child. Um, we're told to have faith like a child, but not faith of a child. Um, however, very often in our culture, when I hear people talking about deconstructing their faith, um, they're saying, I used to be sort of a, a traditional Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, and I'm getting rid of the things I don't like anymore. And that makes me nervous, right? Because it sounds a little bit like a selective, you know, smorgasbord of I like this part of the Bible, but I don't like this part of the Bible. And I'm not making any logical reason why I'm picking one or the other, right? Now, now we do that, I hope, with some logic, right? Like nobody here checked their clothing to make sure if it wasn't made of two kinds of material before you got dressed today, right? Because there's a Bible passage that says you can't wear clothes from two kinds of material that we don't obey, but with some logic, right? Because the New Testament tells us we don't have to, not just because we don't like that one. Um, so um, one of my concerns about deconstruction is it often becomes, I just, I just don't like this part, so I'm getting rid of it. Um, another one of my concerns about deconstruction is um, many of the people that I've seen go through this process seem to do so without any apologetics, uh, without any defense of the faith, right? So it's almost like they decide it's okay to question, but don't look for answers. And you can see how this could be a problem, right? So if you decided that you're going to question everything about your faith, but don't go looking for answers, then you're going to end up in a tight spot. Um, and, I, and I think one of the pieces of our hubris is that we as humans tend to think that our questions are original and no one's ever thought of them before. Well, guys, our religion's been around for 2,000 years. Actually, arguably, it's been around for at least 3,500 years. So we've already thought of all the questions. So there are no new questions. So it doesn't mean that your questions aren't profound or important. It just means that somebody else had that same profound, important question. And we've been thinking about it for like millennia. So if you don't make the effort to go find out what other people of faith have said in relation to that question, then you're, you're kind of boxing yourself in the corner, right? All questions and no answers. Um, uh, the other, well, I'll just say this in, in closing on this piece. Um, I think when people are deconstructing their faith, um, they often do so by saying, hey, um, my core values exist apart from the Bible and apart from my relationship with Jesus. And I'm going to use those as the criteria to assess what I was taught as a child, right? So my core values are whatever they might be, like love your neighbor and all people are equally good and whatever else. Um, and, and, and I think that becomes a challenge because we assume our core values that without deconstructing them, right? And so I think if you're going to deconstruct your faith and ask deep questions, which is good, you should also deconstruct your other assumptions, right? Because if you're assuming that all people are basically good and God is love, and therefore you're throwing out the parts of the Bible that talk about, for example, hell and judgment, then I want to ask why you believe all people are basically good and God is love, right? Where'd you get that idea? Jim? Jim, is it kind of the idea that as you begin to deconstruct and looking at what you really believe and why you believe it, regardless of what mom and pop told you 100 years ago, you wind up reconstructing your faith? 
Yeah, I mean, I think when you do it in a healthy way, yes, right? I think in a healthy way, you, you begin to deconstruct and then reconstruct your faith, right? And, and again, this happens in all kinds of normal areas of our life, right? Uh, um, when you're a little kid, you think mom and dad are invincible and will protect you from every problem that ever happens and you're good hands no matter what, right? And as you get older, you realize mom and dad aren't superheroes. Right? They might love you, but they, they can't solve every problem you ever have. And when you come to realize that, you may go through a time of questioning. Well, what? And this is what happens to teenagers, right? Hi, teenagers. Um, right? You, you go through a period of saying, all right, well, I believe that because my parents told me, but my parents aren't perfect. Now, why do I believe it? Right? That's a good process. And, and we want you to get to the point where you say, well, I believe that because it's true and not just because someone told me. Um, but... Um, you know, it's all about the goal, right? Is, is the goal of that process to say, I'm trying to work my way to maturity? Or is the goal of that process to say, there's parts of this faith thing I don't like. Can I get rid of them and just keep the parts I do like? That's a little problematic. But how many of us will beat over the head with scripture out of context? Right. That we've got to now deconstruct. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And excuse me? No, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. And we do this, by the way, all the time. So, for example, um, you know, we will go to a story like um, the story of David and Goliath, and we'll tell our kids, here's a great story of how an underdog, you know, rises up and defeats the big guy. Isn't that cool? And we'll make it about a moral thing, about courage or whatever, and we'll miss, like, that's not really what the Bible story is about. The Bible story is about um, the right role of a good king is to go before his people and fight their battles. And Saul is a bad king who's hiding behind his people, even though he's of the size to fight Goliath. And David is a tiny little kid, but, but he's going to do what a good king does. He's going to go before his people and fight their battles, just like Jesus ultimately is going to do, right? That's why it's a great story. That's why he ends up being a great king. Well, that's different than just like have courage. And, you know, like, so we got to, as we grow, we learn more. We go deeper with stories, right? Okay, um, I just thought this was an interesting question somebody asked. So um, comments or questions or thoughts about this deconstruction um, idea before we move on to other things? Did we find out where Jesus is? <laughs> well, where is Jesus? Yeah, thank you. Um, so what I guess, what, what I would say is um, in that process of, of um, either I would, I would rather use the language of faith maturity um, or deconstruction. I mean, the, the central question should be, who do I think Jesus is, right? Where is Jesus in this process for me? Um, and you might come to some conclusions as you read the Bible that do challenge things you believed before, right? Um, and there is some wiggle room for that. Um, you know, an easy example, right? There are Christians that believe you can only baptize adults, and there's Christians that believe you can baptize children too, right? And you could change your opinion on a topic like that and still be a good Christian, right? Um, but in that whole process, where is Jesus for you, right? Because Jesus is the main idea. Um, and I think very often people get stuck in the weeds, right? They miss the main idea. Okay, we keep going. All right, we're gonna keep going. Um, look at this, see, I knew we could, my, my mom's on here. So mom, don't listen to this. 
But my mom said we could do more than one topic at night. And I said, I don't know, mom. And here we are. Okay. Um, all right. Gosh, that's not what I wanted to happen either. All right. Um, so uh, I want to talk about science and religion a little bit. And this is going to tie in to the question of miracles as well. Okay. So we're going to get into science and miracles all together tonight. And I know I have a lot. I'm okay with getting through as much or as little of this as we get through. All right. You guys got to stop me and ask some questions. Um, so I've heard many people say, well, science has disproved religion, right? And I've had this conversation ad nauseum with Christians, non-Christians, everybody. Um, and the, I'll try to make the argument briefly, and you guys can help me if you've heard this argument too. Um, what I have heard is, well, religion was a way of explaining things we didn't understand. And now we do understand so much because we've got science. We don't need religion to keep these things that we didn't get back when we were living, you know, in the Bronze Age or the Stone Age or whatever else. Um, anybody else heard this argument or um, or ever had this concern about a conflict between religion and faith? Um, anybody able to articulate it better than me? Yeah, her. I'm just asking who do you think invented science? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's a great answer, which is actually what I want to talk about tonight. But even before we give that good answer, um, anybody else able to articulate what the, you know, what somebody who might argue this would say? I think simplistically, people use the story of creation because that's the easiest, okay. you know, seven days, you know, seven days type of thing to say what well, didn't happen that way. So even more simple than what you're describing. Great, yeah. So many, perfect. So many people who want to make this kind of argument would come and say, well, you know, the first part of the Bible says seven days creation, and we know that's not true because of X, Y, and Z, and therefore the whole Bible's lies. Yeah, okay, great. I don't, I just don't believe it, but I, good point. Yeah, you're articulating it well. Um, anybody else want to add on to the, the argument? We've articulated it sufficiently, maybe. Okay, um, so I obviously want to make a different argument. Um, and, and I want to say that science is a uniquely Christian concept. So I heard just said this, who do you think invented science? Um, science emerges in the um, Western civilization because of Christianity. And um, this is, um, I mean, it's, I guess it's just self-evident, right? The, the idea of the scientific method doesn't show up in Chinese civilization or in South American civilization or in Native American civilization or in Sub-Saharan Africa. It shows up in Western Europe, right? Um, it shows up in uh, uh, the, the Christian culture. Uh, and um, most of um, the, the great scientific minds that drive the scientific revolution, like the 1500s and 1700s, they're all Christians, and most of them are devout Christians. So not like I grew up in the church and I was baptized as a kid, but I don't really believe it. But like I love Jesus, and like I articulate that on a regular basis, right? So folks like Isaac Newton and Kepler and Mendel and Boyle are all people that have a really deep, rich faith that they're very open and honest about. Um, of course, there are people that are not Christians that are part of the scientific revolution, right? So folks like, I'm not picking on Darwin, but Darwin's pretty openly about being an agnostic, right? So there's plenty of people that are not believers that are involved in the scientific revolution. 
But I think it's important for us to recognize that most of the big players are Christians. And this happens in a Christian worldview. And I think that happens for two primary reasons. I think, I think science as a concept emerges in Western civilization. Um, first, because um, we believe that God made the world and we can therefore learn about the creator through the study of what he created. Right? Just like if I show you a Van Gogh painting, you could say it's a beautiful painting, but you might start thinking about like, this is a weird guy. Look at this crazy painting. This is the kind of guy who cut his own ear off, right? And he'd be right. Um, so there is almost a theological imperative for the Christian that we should study the world because by studying the world, we learn about God. Uh, and then the, the second important sort of theological idea that underpins the scientific revolution is um, that because God made the world, it's logical and orderly and consistent. And you, you can't have science if you don't believe that. And one of the great problems of most other cultures is they don't believe that at, at that time, right? They believe that things sort of happen randomly. Um, but the Christian worldview says, no, we think God perfectly designed everything. And, and it's this unbelievable, beautiful work of art that he's made. Um, and it seems to be consistent. Like, it, like, like a, a perfectly made machine, it keeps producing the same results, right? And because we believe that, um, we have the ability to do science, right? Science is about reproducing the same results over and over again. You can't do that if you have randomization. You can do that if you have a consistent system. Um, I, I added this third thing in there. Um, this is a thing that Boyle talks about called mechanical philosophy. And basically he just says, most cultures of the time believed that science was sort of a semi-conscious, um, uh, almost personified thing. We talk about mother nature, right? Uh, and so they saw mother nature as almost this intermediary between people and the divine. Whereas Christians said, no, like it's just this system that God, God doesn't need an intermediary other than Jesus, right? So there's God and there's everything that God made. <clears throat> and nature isn't alive in the sense of a, a coherent consciousness like a mother nature. It's just what God made. Um, so I would argue um, that science exists entire, almost entirely because of the Christian faith. Um, I also recognize that early on we have some conflict um, around science and the Christian faith. Right During the scientific revolution, it's not a smooth sailing sort of situation. Um, so uh, go all the way back to your high school science class. Do you guys remember the difference between the geocentric theory and the heliocentric theory? This is like a long time ago. People who've been in high school recently are nodding their heads. Tell, tell me what either one of those are. What's, what's, what do those mean? Heliocentric would be that the sun is the center of our solar system, and then geocentric is that Earth is the center. Great. And what did ancient people believe? That the Earth was the center. Yeah, okay, perfect. So it makes total sense, right? If you are sitting on Earth and you look up and the stars and the moon and the sun are moving around you, you're the center of the world. I mean... I think I'm the center of the world. So this makes great sense to me. Uh, and, and everything else is going around you, right? And then um, this guy named Copernicus and later this guy named Galileo say, I'm not so sure. It looks a lot like actually we're going around the sun rather than the sun going around us. Um, now, in the Bible does it say that the sun rotates around the earth? I've read it cover to cover. I'm telling you it doesn't say that. 
right? Um, there was one verse that if you've been reading the, the um, book of history with us, we read, I think today, um, that was a problem. You're nodding your head, you know what the verse was? Uh, sun and the moon actually stopped for a day. Okay. And right. Physicists have proved that it did stop. Yeah. Okay. Fantastic. So, so there's a there's a story in the book of Joshua in this massive battle that Joshua's waging, where he makes the sun stand still in the sky. Well, he doesn't do it. God makes the sun stand still in the sky, so they can finish the battle and, and wipe out their enemies. And because of that one verse, um, there was a whole host of people who were convinced that the, the sun went around the earth or the other way around. Now, um, raise your hand if that verse has convinced you just now that we should have a geocentric theory. Anybody? No, okay. Nobody here has a problem believing that number one, the sun can stand still in the sky, and number two, we can rotate around the sun, right? Um, so it was a huge problem then for a little while, um, not necessarily because it was a conflict between scripture and science, but because it was a conflict between scripture, I'm sorry, between science and what we always believed. And we found one scripture voice, verse to help support what we'd always believed, right? Um, so uh, this happens sometimes. And, and I guess I would argue this is sort of a false conflict, right? Where we're not having a real fight between scripture and science. We're having a fight between what we always thought was true and science. And we're enlisting scripture to support what we always thought was true. Are, are we together? Okay. So um, absolutely, that happens. Um, I think it's clear from our perspective that's not a real fight. Okay. Okay. Um, pause. So so far, so good. Okay. Um, all right. So this is kind of Joe my bullet. I did it again. I did not do this PowerPoint presentation correctly. Okay. Um, so I'm of the opinion that if you, if you um, deconstruct the argument about religion and science being in conflict, you really get to three, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I can think of three big areas of contention, okay? And one of those is what I would call intellectual maturity. One of those is about miracles. And one of those is about the whole creation evolution stuff, right? Um, and so I want to spend a little bit of time on those ideas tonight, because I think that is a place where we see today people having tension. Right? Um, and, and I just briefly want to speak about intellectual maturity. Um, I think this is the one that gets mentioned the most, but it's the weakest argument. So the argument um, from a, a non-Christian perspective would be that um, if, you are, if you're a thinker, Right? If you're educated and, and intelligent, you can't be a person of religion because it doesn't match with science. And I, I guess that, to me, that's so absurd that it barely requires a lot of refutation. Um, but we can begin refuting that by simply saying, well, let me list all these genius people that are all Christians, right? And we can start with Newton and Kepler and Edison Boyle, but we can talk about, you know, um, uh, Oh, what's the guy's name who just sequenced the human genome? Anyway, the guy who just sequenced the human genome. I mean, the, the, there's no dearth of incredible scientific intellectuals that are you know, traditional Christians, right? And so uh, the idea that one leads to the other seems problematic to me. Um, and um, I usually think that when somebody cites that argument, it's a, it's a lack of intellectual rigor on their part, right? They haven't done enough homework to discover that there are so many 
educated um, and especially scientific um, leaders in their field who are devout Christians, right? And so I'm sorry, but that's an awkward conversation because we don't have a common ground, right? I think you're just wrong. Uh, uh, but uh, on the other two topics, we can have a little more of an interesting conversation. So let's talk about miracles tonight and we'll see how far we can get with that. Um, so I wrote these down and I was gonna ask you to give me a definition of a miracle before you saw my little PowerPoints. So don't look at my little PowerPoints and just tell me when, when I say miracle, what do you think a miracle is? You're gonna describe it to a child, right? How would you describe a miracle to a child? Unexpected God happening. Ooh, I like that. Unexpected God happening. That's cool. That's very cool. Something that happens without explanation. Okay, great. Something that happens without explanation. Love it. Find what the only explanation is. Great, great. Something that happens where the only explanation is God. Great. Love it. Something happens that you thought was impossible. Ah, something happens that you thought was impossible. Yeah, that's good. I like that. Okay. Those are great, by the way. Um, uh, I, I just wrote down two. Um, I wrote down, uh, this is from Richard Pertil, uh, an event brought about by the power of God that is a temporary exception to the ordinary course of nature for the purpose of showing that God has acted in history. He's, he's a Theologian, so we want to have lots of words. You guys said it better. Um, I also wrote down a, a line out of the Gospel of John, because in the Gospel of John, Jesus talks about his miracles a lot. He does miracles in all the Gospels, but in John, he talks about them a lot. And in John, he almost always calls them his works. It's a, it's a really interesting, like really short, that like the stuff that God does, right? Miracles are the stuff that God does. Um, Jesus will often say, um, you know, if you don't believe in me because of the words I say, believe in me because of the works that I've done. Right? You, you saw me raise the dead. You saw me feed the 5,000. That ought to be proof enough. Um, we're going to come back to those definitions in just a second. But, but I guess I, I would like to say that this conversation about miracles is really important to us. Right? Uh, there is no faith without miracles. I mean, there's no biblical faith about miracles, right? If you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, or if you don't believe in the parting of the Red Sea, or if you don't believe in, you know, Jesus walking on water and all that stuff, you're not a Christian, right? I mean, you can believe there was a nice guy named Jesus who said some nice things, right? But miracles are the essence of our faith. They're the essence of our faith because we believe that not just there is a God out there, but that the one God out there is interested in our lives and intervenes in our world and cares about us personally and has shown up in history um, to make a way for us to be in relationship with him. Right? So without miracles, there's no, there's no Christian faith um, or Jewish faith. Um, so um, miracles are really important. Um, okay. This is going to be the same thing, isn't it? Ah, perfect. Just what I wanted. Um, all right. So... I wanted to try to throw out a few of the objections to miracles, a few of the uh, objections to why people don't think miracles are believable, and then try to re respond to those. Um, so the, the first one um, is the one I hear most often, right, which is that, that miracles are a violation of the laws of nature, right? There's, there's the way the world works, and if the 
And the world always works this way, and so there's just no way for it not to work this way. Um, and this is maybe most famously uh, explained by David Hume, who said, a miracle is a violation of the laws of nature, and as firm and unalterable experience has established these laws, the proof against a miracle from the very nature of the fact is as, um, in, uh, as sorry, I should say as entire as any argument from experience can possibly be imagined. Um, basically, he's just saying, you know, you make an argument from experience. This is my experience is, this is the way things go. Um, well, the way science works is the strongest argument from experience, right? And so it, it always works that way. So when you tell me it didn't work that way, I think you're probably wrong because my experience leads me to believe that it always works this way, okay? Um, that, that argument kind of makes sense, the other side, yeah, okay. So then a couple of, of uh, three actually responses to me that are, that are helpful to this comment. Um, the first is I'd like to go back to the definition of miracle again, um, because I think sometimes we, like David Hume, think of miracle as a time when sort of God violates his own laws, right? God says things fall, gravity happens. So when Jesus walks on water, he's breaking one of his laws, right? Um, but that's not how Jesus talks about it, right? Jesus talks about them as his works. This is what I'm doing. Um, so I, I had a professor who didn't like to use the word miracle. He just said, there's the way God normally works and the way God sometimes works. Normally, God thinks it's great that things fall when you throw them in the air, right? Sometimes God doesn't. <laughs> uh, and, and there's no inconsistency with that, right? It's, it's, it's God who loves the beauty of gravity working at 9.8 meters per second squared, and therefore you fall when you walk into water. And it's that same guy who said, oh, this time I'm gonna do it differently. Um, uh, another way to say this is um, when we think about um, the laws of nature, is there a do and not a must, right? So when, when we are, um, as scientists, evaluating our world, um, we don't say things must fall, we say things do fall. Right? When I drop things, they fall. When you drop things, they fall. When you drop things, they fall. Our experiences, they fall. And they fall at a consistent rate. And so a law describes what things do. That's how scientific laws work. They don't describe what things must do. They just describe what things do. Um, and so um, because things normally do something, doesn't mean things have to always do that thing. Ironically, David Hume is a really good argument um, to this point. Other than this particular argument about miracles, David Hume um, has uh, aversion to inductive reasoning. Inductive reasoning is just, it always happened this way, so it always will happen this way. And Hume says, again, except for this one exception, that's a really bad way to reason. Um, another philosopher has said, imagine if you were a turkey, and every time you see the farmer, he brings you food. And you assume that every time you ever see the farmer, he will bring you food. And that's true for most of your life until the day before Thanksgiving, right? And then he doesn't bring you a food, <laughs> you are the food. Um, so just because it always has happened that way doesn't mean it always must happen that way, right? That's, that's actually really poor logic. And so we would say, yeah, laws are a do, but they're not a must. Um, the other point I would make uh, on this violation of the laws of nature thing is um, there is a difference between weighing evidence and summing evidence. And, and what do I mean by that? I mean, um, uh, I, I'm sorry, this is not my idea. I stole it from someone, but I forgot who I stole it from. Um, summing evidence is, is taking the sum of all the things you've heard and putting it together. Right? 
weighing evidence and saying, hey, this piece of data is more important than some other piece. Um, for example, uh, I might say, um, as I look throughout my, um, my life with my child or my children, um, that the sum of the evidence is that they exist to drive me insane, right? Uh, and they like just demand, demand, demand from me. Um, and most days I'm getting ready for school or I'm you know, dealing with their homework or I'm, I'm doing for them, for them, for them, for them all the time, right? But there are these moments with my kids where they say, hey, dad, I love you. And they give me a hug before bed. And it's a short moment. But the weight of that outweighs everything else, right? And everything else for me gets reinterpreted because of the weight of that one detail. And, and I don't look at the homework help or the getting them ready for school as laborious anymore. It's great, right? Because I had that one thing. Does that kind of make sense? Um, we do this with everything in our life. And, and reasonable people do this. We say, oh, sure, there's the sum of all the evidence. But some pieces of evidence are more important. They're more weighty than others. So we would say that about miracles, right? Yes, it is true that ordinarily food doesn't magically multiply, right? And I got a lot of some evidence, but I got some really good evidence that says that a couple of times it did. And, and it actually has more weight because it's so unusual, right? Um, and I'm going to say I trust that it has more weight for me than even though I can't reproduce it, right? Does that kind of make sense? Weighing versus something? Okay. Um, Oh, yeah. All right. And the, the last thing I would mention here is um, uh, when, when Hume talks about this argument, he basically says, you know, you're always weighing your experience. You know, food doesn't magically multiply, things fall, you can't walk on water. Um, you're always weighing that against the testimony of somebody else. Well, Deb told me that God talked to her yesterday. My experience is God's never talked to me, but Deb says God talked to her. So what do I weigh more, my experience or Deb's testimony? And, and Hume's conclusion is you have to weigh your own experience, right? And the collective experience of people. Um, and I guess my response would be, while I recognize that testimony, human testimony is far from perfect, um, for most of us, it is the most important piece of evidence in any decision-making process, right? So if... Um, uh, if we talk about a court case or if we talk about a relationship with a friend, right? Um, uh, I don't know why I'm picking on you, Deb. I'm sorry. Um, but uh, Deb and I were supposed to, yeah, right? She never sit in the front. So Deb and I are supposed to meet together for lunch and she doesn't come. And my experience is people blow me off for no reason. They're, they're just being mean to me, right? You, that's probably your experience too. Um, but then she says, no, no, Jim, you don't understand. Um, I had this crisis that came up, and I have to decide, do I believe my experience or do I believe her testimony, right? And, and the decisive factor is always, how reliable is she, right? How reliable is the person giving the testimony? Uh, and that gets really to the core of our Christian faith, right? If we're going to talk about how reliable is this testimony of Scripture. And if we believe it to be reliable, we can trust it over my ordinary experience. And if not, not. Um, but it's not unreasonable to trust testimony over experience. We do it all the time. Um, now, we can have a whole other conversation, and we will, about why we should trust the Bible. Um, but as a concept, are, are we together? Questions about, yeah, bring it on. Miracle or God's will? 
advancements of medical science, the first person that was ever resuscitated was clinically dead by CPR. Yeah. Is that a miracle or is that just God's will that these people, smart people, whichever this out, that CPR could save that person's life? Right. Yeah. Okay. This is great. Um, so the, just the comment is uh, the first time somebody did CPR to save somebody's life, to bring them back from the dead, we often say, um, was that a miracle or is that just God's will? Um, yeah, you're getting a really important point, right? Because um, as we said earlier, how we define miracle matters. So if we define a miracle only as uh, an aberration from the things, the way things normally work that we can't possibly explain, then that's not a miracle because we, we can come up with some other explanation. Um, but if we define a miracle like Jesus does, which is God working, then sure, lots of things can be miraculous, right? It's, um, I guess the question is, is it um, something improbable or something impossible, right? Like you said, um, it's improbable that somebody would invent CPR. Uh, and it's improbable that pushing on somebody's chest would bring them back to life. Turns out it does. Um, there is a difference between that and um, Jesus coming back to life on his own three days later, right? I mean, there's, so one of those is improbable, one of those is impossible. Um, but yeah, I would, I would say, um, and Jesus would say that, that God is at work, right? God is always working, and therefore Jesus is always working, and it's constant, and things like you just described are God at work, right? Um, and this gets to, is this our next? Hold on, where are we going next? Um, no, uh, we're going here. Um, so th this gets to a, another point about miracles, right? Which is, people often say, why don't we see miracles today? And, and I hear this all the time, right? In fact, this was a write-in question. See how I'm pulling these together? This was a write-in question. Somebody said, hey, wh why don't we experience God now like people experience God in the Bible? And, and my first comment would be what you just said, right? Which is, well, experiencing God doesn't require that experience to be a miracle in the impossible sense, right? We experience God all the time. The, the, the idea of, from, from the very first page, uh, of the Bible is that God designed us for partnership, right? That we work together with God to do things. So of course the Holy Spirit could work together with a doctor to bring a patient back to life. Right? Totally. And of course it's miraculous, right? And of course it's also not miraculous, right? It's you know it's a it's a weird middle ground, but it's God at work. Right? It's no longer a miracle. Right. Now it's every day, right? Yeah. Right. Um, there is an argument to be to be made on the unchristian side that, um, and this actually, uh, see, this is great, um, uh, that when we, what we call miracles are simply things people didn't understand before, right? If you went back in time and you brought CPR, they would think it was a miracle, right? Because it'd be like, oh my gosh, he brought this guy, how did he do that? You know it's not a miracle in the way that Jesus did miracles, um, but that you just have some science in Ohio. And so it's true, and it's been said by a number of people, that any su sufficiently advanced society or science will look like magic or miracles to someone who doesn't understand that, right? Um, so this is one of the arguments against miracles, is that, well, maybe the ancient people were just gullible. They were just dumb. And somebody did something like that by accident, and they didn't know that CPR was about to license, so they called it a miracle. Right? Um, and... The other argument along this lines is, well, they would just believe anything. You could tell them that, you know, 
your cousin met Zeus in the form of a cow and got pregnant, and people would believe that nonsense, right? Um, so yeah, there's some weird stuff in Greek mythology. Um, and that's, I forgot her name, but it's a story in Greek mythology about a woman that gets turned into a, doesn't matter. Anyway, um, the, so yes, right? There's a component of gullibility there. Um, but, but I think we, we dangerously overestimate this, right? So um, N.T. Wright tells a story about being in a forum um, where somebody was trying to make this argument and saying, well, all that stuff in the Bible, no one would believe it would happen today, et cetera, et cetera. And, and he said, why not? And they said, well, like the resurrection of Jesus, we wouldn't believe that today because now we know people don't come back from the dead. We have 200 years of scientific evidence showing us that's not true. And N.T. Wright was like, wait a minute. Do you honestly think that most people in the ancient world didn't understand how death works? Do you think that Homer and, you know, uh, Moses and all these ancient people thought, oh yeah, people come back from the dead all the time? No, of course they didn't, right? They understood that when you died, you stayed dead. This wasn't a revelation that came up from science, right? Uh, and so that, why do you think they wrote this stuff down? Because they thought it was unbelievable and crazy and never happens, and yet they saw it, right? Um, so sure, they weren't scientifically minded, and sure, they didn't know things we might know about science, but they knew enough to understand that dead people don't come back to life and that people don't walk on water, right? And so when those things happened, they wrote them down. They were like, holy moly, this is different, right? Um, uh, okay, yeah, the, the, the quick summary there. Um, okay, um, so the, the third piece about miracles that I would just come back to, and this is the, we don't see miracles today, um, uh, and, and I've heard people say, um, and uh, Christians from a questioning standpoint and non-Christians from a challenging standpoint, I see all these miracles happening in the Bible, right? Why don't they happen in my life? Why don't we see them, these sorts of things happening today? And I thought that before. Anybody else thought that before? It's a reasonable question. Um, so uh, my, my quick answers to that, um, the first one is, they're pretty rare in the Bible too, right? So remember the, the Bible records, um, at least from Moses to, to the apostles, something like 1,600 years of history, right? 3,500, uh, sorry, um, I'm doing math. Uh, yeah, uh, 1,500 BC-ish to like 100 AD is when the last of the New Testament is written. So 1,600 years. Um, and over 1,600 years, we have, like, just this. Like, this is it, right? And by the way, most of this isn't miracles, right? You, you read the Bible. I mean, Psalms is a miracles, and Proverbs is a miracles, and Ecclesiastes is a miracles. And when you read First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, not a lot of miracles in there, right? And in general, miracles are rare in the Bible, uh, other than the stories of Moses and Jesus, where they happen all over. Right? I mean, Moses is the great salvation figure in the Old Testament. Jesus, the great salvation figure in the New Testament. There's just miracles happening everywhere. Right? But other than that, even in the Bible, miracles are relatively rare. Right? Again, this is why they get written down. Right? Um, because people said, oh, this is, this is amazing. So, yeah, Elijah does some pretty amazing stuff. Right? And we wrote all of it down because there aren't very many Elijahs. Um, so... Um, I think there is a danger, and for even for Christians, and reading the Bible and thinking um, that it's one supernatural event after another. 
It's really not. It's really um, these two central supernatural events, right? The Exodus and the story of Jesus. And then a few other supernatural events around them um, that everybody else is asked to believe in. So uh, even like in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, as the apostles are traveling around, they're doing some miracles, right? But their main thing is believe in the miracles of Jesus, right? Their main thing is believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and even then, they're saying, hey, I, I know, like, you're not going to see anything as amazing as this. But I want you to believe. But I want you to believe in what you're doing. Um, uh, I also think it's helpful for us to realize as Christians um, that in um, those few situations where the miraculous became ordinary, um, it wasn't more persuasive than when the miraculous was extraordinary. So again, our two best examples for that are the time of Moses and the time of Jesus, right? So think about the time of, we've had this conversation before, people. Think about the time of Moses, right? They are wandering in the desert after the 10 plagues, after the parting of the Red Sea. What are they eating every day? Man, they're eating like magic food every day, right? I mean, it's not magic, it's miracle, miracle food every day. Um, what, what is guiding them around? Yeah, there's a pillar of fire and smoke. Like, like I mean, it's like, it, it's big, it's around, right? The wilderness. Um, there are other constant miracles that are happening, but there's two that happen literally every day, one of them 24 7. The Israelites can't get their stuff together to, literally to save their lives, right? I mean, they literally can't save their lives. Like, God is flying around in this pillar of fire, and they're like, I don't know if I believe in God. <laughs> um, let's go to Jesus, right? I mean, you know all the incredible things Jesus does, but a lot of them are public. I mean, the feeding of the 5,000 is public, right? And after he feeds 5,000 people, and they all seem to know it was a miraculous event, um, what, I remember the Gospel of John. Um, he leaves. They come and find him. And they're like, hey, do it again. We'd like some more. <laughs> what are you talking about? More bread? Like, you're missing the main idea here. Um, so I, I think sometimes we think, boy, if I could just see those miracles, I would totally believe. The experience of history is no, not, not necessarily, right? And that you can explain away anything. You can misinterpret anything. Um, and whether you have the, you know, the miracles of Jesus and Moses, whether you have, like, me or like King David, who don't really see any miracles on that level, you're still expected to trust, right? It's about faith. It's about trusting in what God has done when he entered history through Moses and through Jesus. Um, and, and, and last but not least, I would just say um, miracles do continue today. And I don't mean miracles by the sense of the improbable. I mean miracles in the sense of the impossible. Um, and um, Gosh, there's, there's innumerable examples of this, but you've probably had the experience of praying for someone and someone saying, hey, this person's got terminal cancer, they're going to die, or whatever it might be, and then it not happening, right? And the doctor's saying, we don't know why. We don't know why. We, we cannot explain why this happened. Um, and, and I have heard plenty of stories um, uh, that even are like more miraculous than that, right? And um, like in the Bible, like in human history, um, they're not common. They are special. They are a little bit unusual. Um, God's goal isn't to make us believe in him by overwhelming us with evidence, um, but by inviting us to believe the evidence we already have. Right? And sometimes an answered prayer 
um, that cannot be explained any other way can be an encouragement to get on the bandwagon and follow Jesus. Okay, um, boy, that was a lot about miracles. Comments, questions, thoughts about this piece. If somebody came up, no, oh, great. Just one thing. I would guess that there are a lot of things that occur that are very unusual to one or two people. Yeah. I mean, so individual. Yeah. That it doesn't get on the, in the paper as a big deal, yeah. but in their perception, mm -hmm. you know, their relationship or whatever is going on. Right. Them, it's a miracle, right? You know, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The, the idea that that um, on an individual level, people have encounters with God that 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 feel and are supernatural. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think um, you know, one of the challenges in that is um, those personal experiences may not always be transferable to other people, oh. right? So I have had people say, "Boy, Jim." Um, I had this unbelievable experience. I looked up in the sky and I saw this thing and I know it was from Jesus. And I thought, cool, I don't know that's from Jesus, but it's awesome that you do, right? Um, and so, yeah, I agree. I, I think that's a whole other level of, of the supernatural experience, right? That, that personal encounter with God that, has, that, that God knows will have special meaning for me, even though it's not going to persuade somebody else, but it matters to me. Yeah, that's great. Um, so let's imagine that you were sitting down with somebody and they said, hey, uh, you know, I don't believe in miracles and science proves miracles. Could you share some of this with them? It's a lot of data. I, I can't do the osmosis thing that we were hoping for. Um, so what I would encourage you to do actually is um, I'd encourage you to think this through, think a conversation through in your head, right? Imagine that you were talking with somebody who wasn't perhaps a believer, not an angry person, just a person that said, hey, one of the reasons I can't believe is, you know, I don't, I think science disproves um, faith and, you know, miracles can happen and whatever. Maybe you could say, hey, well, I actually have some ideas on that. Can we talk about it? Again, not I'm going to beat you down, um, but hey, let's talk about it. Um, okay. Okay. Uh, I knew this was going to happen. I'm totally happy that it happened. Um, I was going to do a little bit more, and I don't have time. Um, so maybe next time we're together, we'll do some of this. Um, I said earlier on that there were three big challenges to the, or three big components to the science disproves religion conversation. You know, the intellectual, uh, intellectual component, the miracles, and then the concept of creation, evolution, all that stuff. Um, and I ran out of time. So maybe we'll get a little bit of in, in this next time. Um, I just wanted to say, um, oh yeah, okay. Um, I wanted to end with this. So um, Isaac Newton, obviously a genius, physicist, invented calculus, all these things. Um, I deeply devoted Christian. Isaac Newton um, was famous for saying that limited knowledge leads one away from God, but with increasing knowledge, one finds the way back. I really like this idea a lot. 
I think it's especially true in this conversation about science. Right? I, I know a lot of people that have a little bit of knowledge about science or a little bit of knowledge about the Bible, and they think, oh, well, clearly science is proves religion. Um, but as they get more information about either of those topics, right, science or religion, they start realizing, oh, maybe it's not as clear as that. Um, and, and there is a reason why the vast majority of the, um, you know, physicists and, and uh, the, the people that are doing sort of the cosmic level of scientific research um, are not atheists. They're not all Christians, right? But a lot of them, simply the process of science led them to say, hey, this isn't an accident. I'm not all there is. It's not all about me. Right? Um, so um, I often think when someone says, boy, I know science is true religion. Hey, you know what? That's such an interesting idea. Let's talk more. Let's learn more about science and about religion. I think as you learn more about both of those things, you'll see why that's like. Um, so limited knowledge is one away from God. With increasing knowledge, one finds the way back to him. Um, and then I, I really like uh, this line from Albert Einstein. Um, Albert Einstein is not a Christian, um, but he says, science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind. And I, and I like that a lot, um, that uh, all truth is God's truth. Right? I'm, I'm not going to hide um, from scientific truth. Now, just because science says it doesn't make it true, right? That's how science works. They have one conclusion until they get a better one, right? Um, we thought we sort of orbited around the sun and then we realized, well, it's, it's an ellipse and not a circle. And then we realized there's galaxies and boy, we were off to the races, right? Um, but I'm not afraid of truth. If it's truth, it's God's truth. Um, and I can learn more. This is the, the premise of science from the beginning, right? Is I can learn more about God by studying what God has written. So of course I want to learn more about God and therefore of course I want to study more. Um, at the same time, um, without purpose, all that study is kind of useless, right? If, if I don't know the God who made it, it doesn't do me any good to know what he made, right? Um, and so science without religion is lame, religion without science is blind. I really love that concept. Okay, um, hey, I, I, um, um, I have a little typo in our slides because I wrote next week, but actually, we're not meeting next week. I'm sorry, but it's spring break. And so, I mean, I'm actually going to be here, but the kids aren't meeting and the middle school kids aren't meeting. And so we're not doing adult class either. So by next week, I mean, next time we're together, which is the 30th, okay, uh, of March, th March 30th. Um, we will, I wanted to do evidence of the resurrection of Jesus because um, a lot of people had that on, on high on their list. And we'll get into the very end of that science conversation too at that time. Sound good? Okay. Um, hey, I'm enjoying trying to do things you guys are interested in. So as we go through this process, if you have other topics you're interested in, I would love it if you'd say, hey, um, Jim, what if we considered blah, blah, blah. And we'll see if we can get that into the rotation. Okay. Let me uh, close this in prayer. Gracious God, we thank you that you have been willing to enter into the world you created and do extraordinary things. We thank you most of all that you became human in Jesus uh, and that um, you showed us your works, uh, your ordinary and your extraordinary works. Uh, we thank you that Jesus is still working and Father, you are still working and we get to continue to see um, your ordinary and extraordinary works in our lives. Uh, and we pray, Lord, that 
you would give us the opportunity uh, if it should come to pass that we might share um, some of the good news with those who don't know it. And um, we pray, Lord, that we would have an opportunity to be in dialogue, to be in conversation with a non-believer. And um, if this might be their question, uh, to have the opportunity to point them back to you. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.